Well, let's lean into the text this morning. Uh, like I said, Hebrews 12 has been a packed scripture. Uh, there has been a lot to learn and uh, no shortage of things to apply to our own hearts and lives. Uh, in verse number 14, well, verses 7 through 13, I hope that you, we, we went over that last week, and that talks about the chastening of the Lord and what a great, profound truth Hebrews 12 brings to us. And we actually spent a lot of time leaning into that last Sunday morning at 11. So we taught it at 10, and then we talked about it at 11. We talked about how, uh, really, we just asked a bunch of questions in the 11 o'clock service and the 6 p.m. service last week on New Year's Eve, and uh, we just asked questions about how we were doing. And uh, my hope and my prayer is that God brought some measurable conviction in your heart, and uh, that's not a bad thing. That can bring peaceable fruits of righteousness. Uh, when you're willing to acknowledge, hey, it's me, I'm the one who's wrong, I need to fix my heart, and you're willing to make the work and put the work in to fix your heart, man, what a blessing it is to be able to get that answer right. And uh, I, I, I was talking with somebody, and we, we mentioned this a few times even last Sunday school, that uh, the Holy Spirit conviction, it's kind of like the teacher coming alongside of you when you're doing an open book test and saying, hey, answer seven's wrong. And uh, you have that opportunity. I know that you want to kind of like, nobody likes being told they're wrong, but when the Holy Spirit of God does it and he begins to convict you, that's a gift. And uh, that's just part of, that's a gift that Christians have, lost people don't, right? And they kind of have to rest on their own laurels and rest on their own conscience, whether or not they feel bad about it or not. Uh, whereas a Christian, we have someone outside of us Someone who, who is completely, uh, he, he's not attached to whether or not we it makes us feel good or not. He's just, his standard is truth. He's the judge. And so he brings in that Holy Spirit conviction. And what a blessing that is to be able to make the answer right and to be able to correct it. And I was talking to another brother this week who's just going through some hardship. You just pray for each other if you would. Uh, that's just how life is, right? There are different seasons. We talked about that on Wednesday night. And uh, sometimes in the season of hardship, we want to know the right answer. Uh, but sometimes the Lord wants us to, to walk through that, right? He wants us to search the the scriptures ourselves, uh, we kind of turn around to the teacher and say, okay, if seven's wrong, then tell me what, what it is. And the teacher says, no, 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 go to the book and find it, you know, here, look over here. And uh, the reason that he does that is if he gave us the right answer, we would cheat. And uh, we would, if we knew what God was trying to teach us in a season of hardship, we would just cheat. And we put the right answer down and be like, okay, so it can be over now? And uh, that's just not how growth works. God is desiring for us. It's almost like weight loss or, or, you know, if you're trying to build muscle, there's no shortcut to it. You just kind of have to put in the hard work to grow. And you got to grow as a man and grow as a woman and grow as a Christian. And so there's no quick pill that makes you all of a sudden, you know, where you want to be. And that's the same thing in our Christian life. There's just work. And uh, he is conforming us to the image of Jesus. And some of that is fellowshipping with his sufferings. And some of that is enjoying and knowing the power of his resurrection. And so that's just part of life. Well, that was uh, verses 7 through 13. And then we started in. We only got a couple verses in. Verse 14 and 15. Let's read that. Uh, this is where at the end of the chapter, it's kind of his closing thought. Uh, the author is trying to bring us to a place where we live peaceably with God and peaceably with men. And that ought to be a striving goal that each of us have. And uh, that's a wonderful kind of oversimplification of Christianity, wouldn't you think? Where if we could live peaceably with God, hey, we're living holy, and we could live peaceably with others, we're, we're living, we're, that's the first and the second great commandment, right? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and love thy neighbor as thyself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. And so in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, the final thought of Hebrews 12 uh, is that he's going to lean into this idea of following after holiness and following after peace with all men. We'll look at verse number 14. And uh, our new text is in uh, verse number 16, but it says, follow after peace, or rather follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And so if you want to live in the presence of God, you have to be right with him and right with others. And uh, let me talk to our young people right now. Uh, it, you can't be right with God and wrong with mom and dad. 
You can't. You could be the 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 best teenager at faith. You could have the more uh, Bible memory, uh, you know, than anybody. You could be the best soul winner. You could you could do all manner of things. But if you're not right with mom and dad, you're not right with God, and uh, that is an imperative thing. And now, Christian, let me say that to you as well. Uh, you can say you're right with God, but if you're wrong with people and you're slandering and gossiping and unkind and all these things. Listen, out of the same mouth, bless we God and curse we men. These things ought not so to be. And uh, so these are two things that God enables by grace. And we see that actually uh, in the coming verses. But look at it, it says, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. And so God has given us enough grace to live peaceably with each other. And God has given us enough grace to overcome sin, right? Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God can tempt no man with evil, right? But when you're tempted, you're drawn away of your own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Your sin is a result of you failing to access the grace that God has made available to us to overcome evil. God is faithful and will, with that temptation, make a way of escape. And so God is capable of allowing and enabling you and I to overcome sin. And so again, if we fail the grace of God, look at verse 15, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now again, real quick, stop, heads up. This is not talking about losing your salvation. Isn't it funny? We've just gone through nearly all of Hebrews. We've got one more chapter left. And Hebrews is the, is the book that most people who believe you can lose your salvation, this is the book they go to to do that. Isn't that ludicrous? After having studied through this book, like there's probably not another book. I'm sure maybe there is, but at least in my mind right now, the book of Hebrews, if anything, reinforces the inability to lose your salvation, that there's no more sacrifice for sin. And yet it's the go-to passages and go-to chap- chapters and book uh, for the people who think you can lose your salvation. Because they'll use verses like this, which is not at all what it's talking about. It isn't saying, well, you were walking in grace as a saved person, then you fell from grace. No, he just said, live peaceably with all men. And if you fail to access that grace, notice what happens. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. And again, if you're not following after peace with all men and following after holiness, the only way by which you can do that is by accessing that grace. And if you fail to access that grace, you know what happens in your heart? Man, bitterness. And it troubles you. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. We probably all at one time or another, whether saved or lost, at one point in our life, we've all struggled with bitterness, right? Somebody hurt us, somebody wronged us, uh, continued to perpetuate that wrong and that offense. And it's very easy as a Christian uh, to become really offended uh, and let that root of bitterness go deeper and deeper and deeper. And the Bible says that it troubles you. But notice also, uh, it also says this, um, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby. So because you've been troubled, thereby many be defiled. One of the most poisonous people in a church is a bitter person because they're just, they only see, it's almost like, you know, you've probably heard that figure of speech. They only see red, right? That, that, that idea is such a toxic reality in any relationship. Uh, when a wife gets bitter at her husband, there's no, there's nothing he can do to, to, uh, to please her. There's no level he can rise to. There's no thing he can do because there's this deeply held bitterness. And whether you even realize what caused the bitterness in the first place, you've kept feeding it and feeding it and feeding it and not letting it go. And maybe time or two, you know, in a sermon, you're like, okay, I'll try to forgive him, but you don't really root out that root of bitterness. And I love that. Uh, I love the illustration that talks about that root of bitterness. Uh, we've all probably pulled weeds at one time in our life, if, if not only under our parents' regime, right? Uh, how many of you, your parents made you pull weeds? Yeah, okay. And you survived and I survived. We make our kids pull weeds too. But the thing is, you got to get the root out, right? It's not enough just to mow it because it'll just grow back up. Not even enough to snap it at the ground. It's going to grow back up. And so that's why when it comes to rooting out bitterness, it takes 
takes genuine, sincere work. And it takes below the surface kind of work. It takes going back and trying to figure out where did it start and how long have I held it and why have I held it and trying to root those things out. And if you need help with something, uh, please, again, see myself or someone that you love who loves the Bible and knows Jesus uh, and knows you. That's important too. Whenever you get counsel from somebody, get some get counsel from somebody who knows you. Um, otherwise, you can paint a facade and, and it just, it, it's hard to give proper counsel unless you know somebody. Uh, so this idea of following peace with all men and holiness, which no man, uh, uh, without which no man shall see the Lord, verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now we're going to jump into verse number 16, and this is our new content, and my hope is to be able to finish out this chapter. I've thought that the last three times, so I assume we will. We've only got a handful of verses left, but look at verse 16. Um, Keeping in mind what's happening, because again, someone will use Hebrews 12, 16 to talk about election when it has nothing to do with election, okay? We are not talking about salvation right now. We're talking about following peace with all men and following after holiness. Look what verse 16 says, lest. So again, that word alone uh, dictates and necessitates the previous verses. So it's saying lest. So because of that, if you don't access that grace, here's what's going to happen. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, so anybody unholy, as Esau who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Oh, this is so important. If you fail to access the grace of God that enables holy living and forgiveness of other people, what you're going to do, you're going to end up selling super valuable things for things that don't last. Think about that. That's the illustration the Bible just used. Esau. Esau, who for one morsel of meat, a tiny piece of meat, sold everything, his birthright, all he was supposed to inherit from his father, he sold it. Why? For temporal food, for something selfish, for something in the immediate. And again, if you fail to access the grace of God to live holy and to live peaceably with other men, the Bible says there's going to be fornicators and profane people just like Esau who give away valuable things for temporal selfish things. Listen, it, 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 you can see it, and you've probably seen it if you've been saved for any amount of time, right? You watch a man trade 15 years of marriage for five minutes of pleasure. That's Esau. He traded all of his birthright for a morsel of meat. You, you, there are men and women who will trade the respect of their family or their, their time in their church family all for five minutes of something that their flesh and their bitterness or their, their desires chased after, some addiction. They give up the trust of their wife for some addiction. They give up the trust of their spouse and their children for some screen. Uh, and again, keep reading. Look at verse 17. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. Again, that's absurd. Look at verse 17. For you know how that afterward when he, Esau, would have inherited a blessing, he was rejected because he gave it away. For he found no place of repentance though he sought it carefully with tears. This is so important. Again, a Calvinist is going to say, look, they wanted to get, Esau wanted to get saved and he couldn't get saved. That's not what it's talking about. Esau wanted the blessing back, but he couldn't get the blessing back. It was gone. And here's how that works. Here's a husband who for a morsel of bread gives away his marriage. And then after the fact, oh Lord, I want it back. I want to go back to a pure marriage where I wasn't shattered and broken. I seek it with tears, deep repentance. And it can't be fixed. Teenager who gives away their moral purity can weep with tears and God, would you restore it? No, it's gone. I, I've used the illustration before. Uh, I'm a dad and, and, and you dads in here will kind of recognize this. You want to be able to fix every toy your kids break, right? Well, to a degree, if it's an annoying one, it's like, yeah, sorry, it ran out of batteries. It died. We can't fix that. Um, 
But I try. My kids know there's a good chance dad can fix it. And my kid, my, one of my children were sitting in the back seat. And they popped the balloon. And they said, daddy, fix it. It's a true story. And I turned around and I thought, well, I can't fix that. And there are some things when given away, you, you can't fix that. You can seek it with tears. No, daddy, I want my balloon back. But it doesn't come back. And there are certain things in life, like a birthright or like a marriage or certain. Now, again, Jesus can make all things beautiful and put them in order, and he can fix all kinds of things. He can raise things from the dead. But there are certain things, once given away, can never be brought back. Though you seek repentance diligently with tears, there is no access back into what was whole and now is broken. Again, what is he talking about? Salvation? No. He's talking about Esau, who had, a, had the blessing and lost the blessing. He was still a son of his father, right? He still received some inheritance from his father. But the fact of the matter is what he gave away was given away and it could not be gotten back. And that's a good thing to remember. Now, we as Christians, oftentimes, because of the goodness and grace of God, we tend to think, you know, well, we have this presumptuous approach to sin. Well, I know that I broke it, but God can repair it. And for the most part, that's probably true. But it'll also never be back in the condition that it once was. Now there's bondage and appetite introduced into a marriage or into a relationship. Uh, now there's some offense that you're both going to carry and some, something of that nature. And so again, this presumptuous idea that daddy can fix it, he can, but the reality is also that there are some things like Esau's birthright that cannot be restored, though you seek it diligently in repentance and tears. Um, that's just how it works. Now let's, uh, let's jump into our next text. And this is, he is in the same vein of thinking. So don't, don't disconnect. It seems a little disconnected, but here's what he's saying. Keep your mind on grace. You and I have a different access to God than Esau did. You and I have a different access to God than even Moses did. You and I have a different access to God than all the children of Israel did. And that access is into a place of supernatural grace. Okay. So again, going back, Hey, lest any man fail of the grace of God to access Holiness and to access peace with all men. Now notice what he's going to tell us. Look at verse number 18. It says, for you not come, for you are not come unto the mountain that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. Now he is making a reference back to Exodus. When the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai, you're going to see it real clear. It's in the text. When the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai, and if you remember that, nobody could touch the mountain. Only Moses could go up. Moses could go up and speak to God. And if an animal or a person touched that mountain, they would die. And kind of comically, though sad and, and a bit of an indictment on human nature, when Moses got to the top, you remember what God told him? God said, go back down. They're going to touch the mountain. <laughs> which is heartbreaking, right? Moses had to climb all the way up Mount Sinai, get to the top, and God's like, hey, if I don't send you back, I'm gonna have to kill them all. And Moses, like, he kind of like, no, I told them not to touch the mountain. And God's like, yeah, but they're gonna touch the mountain. And so go back down and stop them. It's, it's, it's sad and comical because it's us. We are given instruction and then we're like, but did he really, like, did he say that if we eat the fruit, we shall surely die? Like, did he really mean that? We are such good litigators of having our own desire, right? The children of Israel at the bottom of the mountain, they wanted to go up and see, you know, like what it was. And so they were going to touch the mountain. But this is the mountain he's talking about. Look at verse 19. Well, let's back up. He says, for you not come into the mountain that might be touched and that it burned with fire nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they heard entreated that word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure that which was commanded. And it was so much as a beast touched the mountain, uh, forgive me, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Don't lose it. What he's saying, he gave us a bunch of descriptions, so we know he's talking about Sinai. But what he's saying is, you're not come to that mountain. Hey, Hebrew believers, that's not your access to God. 
That's not how God relates to you. God isn't this God on a mountain that can only talk to Moses. And if you get closer to him, he'll kill you. That's not your access to God anymore because of Jesus. Praise the Lord. Look at verse number 22. But ye are come unto, and he's actually going to give us three things we're come unto, right? We are come unto Mount Zion, Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. So again, the children of Israel, their ancestors, the Hebrew ancestors, they were come to a mountain they couldn't touch. They couldn't even climb the hill to go see God. But you and I are invited into Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, into heavenly Jerusalem, not just Jerusalem, but to heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable company of angels. You and I are given a better access, a new and living way, right? We already saw that. But notice what else we're invited into. He says, and to, verse number 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, of all, and to this, uh, the spirits of just men made perfect. He says, hey, you're invited not only into Mount Sion, you're invited into the presence of God, but you know what's so cool and sometimes we forget? We're also invited into the, into the general assembly of the church. Isn't that cool that in the same breath, God says, hey, you ought to be grateful you're not stuck at the mountain you can't touch. You're invited into my holy presence, heavenly Jerusalem, but you're also invited into a thing I created called the church. You're also invited to be a part of the body of Jesus, the bride of Christ. You're invited into fellowship with saints. You're invited into partnership with believers. You're invited to break bread and to pray and to fellowship and to continue in doctrine with God's people. What a blessing. That's something they didn't have before. They had a religious system that only the religious elite could go in. And again, it was by design that only the high priest could go in, but that design was so perverted by the people in charge, right? Because it wasn't that like, hey, we're going to go in on your behalf. It was like, hey, we get to go in and you don't. That's what it became. What it was designed was, hey, remember, none of us are allowed in there. And even the high priest can die in that presence if he does it wrong. Uh, but now you and I, we're invited into the very presence of God, into the household of faith, to be among God's people. And I get it that someday we're all looking forward to heaven, right? We're looking forward to heavenly Jerusalem in the presence of God, the innumerable angels. But right now, God even gives us a little bit of taste of heaven in the general assembly of the church to be with God's people and to fellowship and to sing and to have, have joy with the saints. And again, I understand, and we talked about this Sunday night. We'll talk about it if the Lord allows. We'll talk about it a little bit more tonight. Um, I get it that it, it, church is hard sometimes, right? Because you're broken and I'm broken and the person next to you is broken. The person behind you is broken. And so we can irritate each other. We can get on each other other's nerves, but that's why we got to access that grace to live peaceably with all men, uh, because church ought to be a little bit of heaven here on earth. Uh, that ability to enjoy God's presence and God's people is something we ought to strive for. Church should not be drudgery. And I, I'm not picking on you if it is. I, you probably know why that would be. There's probably some sin in your heart. You've gotten out of habit of it. Uh, but the fact of the matter is we ought to enjoy the presence of God's people. There ought to be a joy. In fact, it's a sign of salvation. We went back to 1 John, right? That you know that you, you're saved because you love the brethren and you desire to be around them. And so look, we're invited into Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, into a heavenly city with innumerable angels. We're invited into the general assembly. And then look at verse 24. It's a continue. Notice that it starts with the word and. And we're invited and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. 
which is so cool. He says, hey, you're invited into Mount Zion. You're not stuck at Sinai. You're invited into the, the city of God. You're invited into the presence of saints and you're invited into Jesus, into being in fellowship with him because he mediated, he, he negotiated, he established a better covenant by that sprinkling of blood. Now, again, there's so much imagery that if you're not a Jew, you might not you might not catch right away. If you're a Jew, you catch it right away. They were sprinkled with blood at Mount Sinai. Uh, that, that is the same story being referenced. That book, hey, we'll do all that's in the book. The book was sprinkled. The people were sprinkled. And here, as the author of Hebrews puts it, he says, Jesus, a mediator of a better uh, new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel, which actually harkens back to chapter 11, where it talks about Abel, who is dead and yet still speaks. And yet the Bible tells us that Jesus speaks better things than of Abel. Now, again, what was Abel speaking about? What did Abel's, why did Abel make it into the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? Because he trusted in the acceptability of blood. That, that's the only difference between him and Cain, right? He brought blood, God accepted it, and he set a testament for us. Well, Jesus sets a better testament in that the blood is done and that it's finished. He, he speaks a better thing, that there's no more blood offered. You don't need to offer the blood of bulls and goats. You don't need to offer your own blood as they'll do in some third world countries. They'll nail each other to crosses on Easter and carry through cities. And God does not need that. God doesn't expect that. God doesn't want that. That's wicked. That's of the devil. You're earning your own way of salvation, whereas Jesus speaks better things than even of Abel. And verse 25 says this, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Listen to him. Listen to his testimony, Hebrews. Listen to his testimony today, Gentiles. Look at verse 25. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth. Now, who's he talking about? Well, it could be Abel, for sure. That would fit contextually. It also could be Moses. We just heard about Mount Sinai where Moses received the law. But either way, both of those men testified of Jesus. And if they refused to hear the testimony of Moses or even of Abel, there was going to be some judgment. If they escape not who refused him uh, that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. So Jesus is the one we ought to listen to. And this goes back again, I think it's Hebrews chapter 10 uh, that talks about how much sore punishment will we received? If under the law of Moses, they died by the mouth of two or three witnesses, how much sore if we trample underfoot the blood of Jesus and do despite to the spirit of grace? Very similar thought just a chapter or so later. Um, look at verse number 26. Now we're going to enter. It's still the same thought, so don't lose it. It's all one big thing. Um, we're talking about living holy, accessing grace. We don't have what the Hebrews have. We get to come into Zion, uh, Zion, uh, Mount Zion. But there's something cool that happens and a bit of prophecy. Um, it says in verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, which is exactly what God did at Mount Sinai. He shook the earth with his voice, with his nostrils and his breath. It says, but now he hath promised. So now because of that new mediator and that new blood, now he hath promised saying, yet once more, I shall shake not earth only, but also heaven. Okay. Oh, here's where you have to read the text the way the, the audience would have. You have to go back to Haggai. So go back to Haggai chapter number two. If you don't know where that is, just go to the Old Testament and find the smallest books. It's somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, use your table of contents, if you will, to minor profit. This is a direct reference, which again, one of my, let me just kind of, let me just kind of hobby horse and soapbox. One of the reasons I don't think Paul wrote it, Paul would have, Again, you could say, well, he was writing to the Hebrew, so he didn't include the reference. He just assumes they catch the reference, right? This is, this is very much a difference between writing a book to Gentiles and writing it to Hebrews. Because he just, the author just assumed we would know this reference, but I would almost guarantee none of us thought, oh, 
Haggai 2.6. No doubt, that's what he's talking about. But the Jews who, who had memorized large portions and swaths of the Old Testament would have caught this reference. And so in order to interpret it, what in the world is he talking about shaking earth and shaking heaven? Um, what, what is that about? You can get all kinds of crazy, and there are certainly people who do in a Pentecostal movement who will be like, there's going to be a shaking in the house today. It's not what it's talking about, okay? Um, let's not get weird. Let's get biblical, okay? Um, so look at Haggai chapter number two to interpret this passage. What does it mean to shake earth, and what does it mean to shake heaven? Um, look at Haggai chapter two, verse number six. Actually, a prophecy, you'll recognize it real quick. We just, I think we actually quoted this during Christmas. It says in Haggai 2.6, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once, and this is almost a direct quote in Hebrews 12, yet once it is a little while, and I shall shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, who is the desire of nations? Jesus. Okay? Haggai 2.6.7 is a prophecy of Jesus coming. Now, real quick, we're reading Hebrews, which happens after Jesus came. So is this a reference? Well, we know for sure it's a reference to Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. But is it a reference to Jesus coming again? Or was it a reference already fulfilled in Jesus coming? Well, let's keep reading in Haggai. He says, I will shake all nations, verse 7, and the desire of nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts. In this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, there's amazing truth packed into Hebrews reference and Haggai. The idea of shaking something, you'll see it back in Hebrews, so you can go back over there. Um, the idea of shaking something means to unseat it, and move it somewhere else, okay? So it's almost like, you know, if you're moving houses, you're going to shake that couch to get it into the U-Haul, and then you're going to put it somewhere else. The idea is to move something. And so when God came down on Mount Sinai, he shook things, right? His voice. He gave a, a testament, and he gave a covenant whereby man could, in a highly modified way, once again enter into his, his very, very modified presence. And then Jesus arrived, and he shook not only earth, but he shook heaven. How did he move heaven? Well, think about the conversation between Jesus and, and uh, Nicodemus, right? He, he says, well, how can I see the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, no, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven unless you be born again. I am the kingdom of heaven. Jesus literally shook heaven in his bringing it to earth. So there's this, there's this theological uh, rule that you have to tuck into your heart, okay? Whenever you're approaching prophet, not whenever, but oftentimes when you're approaching prophecy, there's this lens you kind of have to look through with Jesus where the, it, it, it goes like this, already, but not quite yet. Okay, has this verse and in Haggai been fulfilled already? Yes, yeah, Jesus, he shook earth and he shook heaven. He brought it here, but then not yet because someday when Jesus returns, he is going to literally relocate the geography of heaven to earth and it's gonna be here, okay? Keep that in mind and go back to uh, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27. That's exactly what the rest of the text says. So yes, did Jesus shake heaven and earth when he came in the prophecy in Haggai 2? A prophecy, yes, of his first coming. And I would even argue that it'd be a prophecy of his second coming as well. He fulfilled many of the same things, but without the first coming, there could be no second coming. If Jesus just skipped his first coming and went straight to his second coming, we'd all be in hell. Okay, so that's the necessity of a first coming because he came to make a way for us to be back into that kingdom. And in his second coming, he's bringing back that kingdom. But are we a part of the kingdom today? Yeah, we are already, but, but not just yet. Okay, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27 with the idea of heaven being relocated. 
It says, and this word yet once more. Hey, we're renewing that prophecy we found in Haggai. We're renewing it yet once more signifying the removing of those things that are shaken. So this is why we would say shaking means to move something. Okay, you remove that cow. So you shook it, you took it out, and it's gone. As of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So Jesus came and he shook the kingdom and the religious system of man. Why? So that the, the things that couldn't be shaken could never be changed, would be brought, and a better testament was given. Jesus came and shook the kingdom of heaven, and someday will return and shake the kingdoms of this earth. Read the book of Revelation, certainly toward the end, when Babylon falls and the great harlot and all these kingdoms go to nothing. Why? So that that which remains forever can be brought and never be taken away. The kingdoms of the world will fall in the second coming of Christ, and the kingdom of heaven will be physically, literally, locally established here on this planet. Again, read verse 27 again. I think it just bears repeating. And this word yet once more, so the prophecy of Haggai and the re reestablishment of it here in Hebrews, again, signify it, the removing of those things that are shaken as of the things that are made. Hey, they're temporal, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, because of this final shaking, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. And that's future tense. That's why it's already, but not yet. We already got the kingdom when Jesus showed up, but it's not here just yet. Uh, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Because we know he's coming and the kingdom of heaven will once again in finality and in fullness be established, shaken in there and brought to here, moved to earth for us to stay in this kingdom that cannot be moved. And then notice how he ends with a hearkening back to Mount Sinai. He says, for our God is a consuming fire. Um, that is a really cool idea about the nature of God, um, depending on your relationship with him. Okay, if you're in Sinai and God's a consuming fire, that's terrifying. Because if you touch that mountain, even if someone acts, if somebody shoved you into the mountain, you were going to die. And that's a horrifying thing. But to know that you're his son and he is a consuming fire is a gift because that's our God. So think about it like this. If, uh, if your little kid was in kindergarten and uh, they were at school and they, you know how kids do it, right? My dad could beat up your dad. My dad's stronger than your dad. Well, how cool is it if the strong one is your father? How terrifying it is it if the strong one is your enemy? If God is a consuming fire and he's on your side, well, if God be for us, who can be against us? But if you're not on the side of God, if we were going to Mount Sinai and God was over there and we were over here and we couldn't go over there, well, that's a horrifying proposition. But if God is on your side and you get to come not only to the mountain, you get to come to Mount Zion, you get to come into the presence of angels, you get to come into the presence of God, into Jesus, and that God is a consuming fire, well then, man, we're on the right side of history and what a joy that is. It's like when the Bible in the Old Testament tells us that God's voice is like the sound of many waters, right? And uh, many people in the room, you'll fall asleep listening to the ocean, right? Because your relationship with the ocean is, it's not a threat to you, you're in your bedroom. Or even if you're up on the cliffs, you know, walking with your wife, the, the sound of ocean is beautiful. But if you're down on the rocks where the waves crash, the sound of many waters is terrifying, right? And if you're lost, the voice of God being the voice of many waters is a horrifying proposition. But if you're related to him, man, it's a beautiful thing. It's a soothing thing to know that our God is a consuming fire and that someday all the kingdoms of this earth will be shaken and removed and a kingdom that cannot be shaken will be brought here and he is our God. What does this have to do with Hebrews 12? To live holy because that, this kingdom's gonna fall. If you're living for this kingdom and you're, you know, you're dog eat dog, running people over, not following after peace, you're trying to have your own thing and own way, man, 
You're not going to live for the kingdom that's coming. You're living for a kingdom that's shaking and will be removed someday, so his kingdom will be established forever. Uh, it's a really beautiful proposition to, to hearken that back in verse 29 to Sinai, is that God was a consuming fire. He's the same God he was. He's still a consuming fire, but we're on his side now. He, he, he brought us over and gave us a new covenant whereby we could be related to him so that his power and awe and fear, it's a blessing to have a fearful God on your side, is it not? Now, it's a God you should fear, but maybe not in the same way a lost person should. I, I don't fear him that he's going to cast me into hell. I fear that I might disappoint him. I fear that I might not honor him. There's still fear there, right? It's kind of like a little kid is afraid of getting spanked, whereas hopefully a teenager has the heart of their dad, and their fear isn't that they're going to get whooped up on, but their fear is, I don't want to disappoint my dad. Uh, still the same fear. You still fear that, that father figure. We still fear our God, but in a completely different way. And that's what grace and the salvation of Jesus puts us. It positions us where the voice of many waters and the consuming fire is on our side and is for us, and that kingdom that lives now will not be and his kingdom will be established forever. Well, hey, thanks for hanging out with me. Uh, we got about 15 minutes before the main service. Uh, let's go ahead and pray and we'll dismiss.